There are several reasons why I'm excited for you to hear this episode with John. First, John has been in the midst of residencies to become a full-on physician, and so his perspective on the topic of healing is a valuable one. Second, John has been a friend of mine for a few years, and we've actually both attended the same house church. And third, this is technically John's fourth episode. If you've been a longtime listener, you're going to recognize John's voice from the three episodes on Kyle and John's healing. If you haven't heard those episodes, it is a powerful story and worth the time. Those episodes aren't a prerequisite to this episode. However, if you have heard that, you're going to have deeper context of what John is coming to the table for as he talks about his current situation, which is this. A few months ago, John unexpectedly discovered that he has significant heart problems. And as a believer and a physician, he is having to navigate how to operate in that space, who God is in that space, and what healing means in that space. This is a really important and valuable conversation. And if you're in the midst of a hard health situation yourself, John's transparent process may encourage you. You're listening to episode 99 of the Where Did You See God podcast. Father God, I thank you that you are God and you are good. And I thank you that you are a healer. And I thank you for what that has meant in John's life. And I thank you for the privilege now of just being able to sit with John, to hear his story and more to hear your story at work, Uh, not just in what you've done, but what you're doing and what you will do. And so we just want to give you this time, this conversation. We pray that you would guide our words, guide our thoughts, that you would take this wherever it needs to go. And we just pray that you are glorified by it. So we give it to you and we thank you in advance for how you're going to work. All this we pray in his holy and precious name. Amen. Amen. So John, I've had a lot of people in this season that I don't know, but I know you. <laughs> and even better, I'm super excited because this is not your first rodeo. You've been on the podcast before. And, <laughs> and fun fact, you haven't just been on one episode, but technically this is your fourth episode. <laughs> Because you and Kyle, we broke down into an amazing three-part story. So I'm really excited just to get some time with you. But one thing that I always do at the start, I like to give guests an opportunity to share briefly who they are, Mm -hmm. but to do so in a fun way. And the fun way piece comes from me making this into an improv game for me where I don't plan in advance and I come up with something random. And here is the random prompt that popped in my head for you. So let's say... I'm just on the internet, and then suddenly a pop-up ad comes up, and it just takes over the screen. And it's got a picture of you smiling and waving, and it's got some text there that says who you are. (laughs) Now, as you know with pop-up ads, if it doesn't draw my attention, man, I'm going to try to close that thing out. So what does the John pop-up ad say that keeps me reading just a little bit longer? Uh, Well, I can definitely say used to be a non-believer, now I'm a complete believer in God in the sense that I cannot deny his existence after the experiences that I've gone to. So in a way, in the pop-up, was a man of science, was kind of leaning towards having faith in God, and now I have no choice but to entirely believe in God, given the subset of experiences that I've gone through. I am a healer by trade. (laughs) I'm a neurology resident in training. 
my job is to minimize risk as well as to help people who undergo strokes, seizures, or any sorts of insults to the brain. Generally, I am the physician that you do not want to see because uh, it's probably gone through several stages before getting to me. More recently, I am a husband to a God-loving woman and never thought this would be the case, but that's all very recent news that defines who I am today. I love it. Here's what I've decided that your pop-up ad actually links to the past <laughs> episodes because that's also what I'm going to tell anybody who's listening to do because you really do like have an amazing, powerful story. And the benefit to having already been on is that we've already recorded <laughs> that part of your amazing story. And it leaves some time for where you are today. And here's what's interesting. You know, you noted that you're a healer by trade. And so already by default, there's a lot that you could offer to this dialogue that I've been pressing into around healing. But you've also been on the other end of that mm -hmm. and you have had to experience what it means for God to be healer for you. So I want to jump into that story. Tell me the story of this recent experience of learning that God is healer. So the most recent experience I've undergone is as of October the past year, I was diagnosed with a cardiovascular disease. More specifically, it was severely reduced ejection fraction heart failure. And this was a diagnosis that was made after some difficulty breathing over a couple of months. I still remember it. Uh, it was one Saturday night in October. I was the senior resident in the hospital setting. I had, there's two neurologists who are basically responsible for anything that goes wrong that's neurologically related and an entire population of patients as well as patients that have questions from home. And it's a very stressful time. I recall having some difficulty breathing as I just went down and up one flight of stairs, had a couple of strokes that I had to evaluate. And when I went home after that strenuous night, just a typical day as a resident in this neurology program, I said, enough is enough. I've been having some difficulty breathing. I've been coughing a bit much. I suspected maybe I picked up a rare bug from one of the pediatric patients that I've been taking care of. Some of those children had all kinds of viral diseases, including COVID. And so that was on my forefront. And I went to bed. I felt better the next morning. I argued about maybe going to the clinic to evaluate myself. Eventually, I convinced myself I should go. It's Columbus Day is coming up. It's going to give me time to get checked up so I can do my chores later. Went to Patient First, which is an urgent care that you can just kind of pop in and pop out. They did an x-ray, and I remember the physician assistant who was taking care of me said, there's something wrong with your heart. It seems to be a bit bigger. And I looked at the x-ray of my own heart. I could tell it was considerably larger. And immediately, I asked what the orientation of the x-ray is. Is it flipped? And, you know, there's a certain orientation that we take the pictures, and no, it was the right picture. The next thing that we decided to do after my lab work, the basic lab work was normal. I asked her if she could measure my oxygen level when I'm walking. And within 20 steps or so, my oxygen level dropped from the 90s to the low 80s, sometimes sinking into the 70s. It's supposed to be ranging in the low 90s for a normal person. And so the physician assistant asked me if she should call the ambulance. And I said, no, I can drive myself to the emergency department myself. 
I did that and I realized I made a mistake because where I park in the hospital, we have to go up this hill in order to get to the ED. And I had to make eight stops mm. on the way up there. I didn't think I was going to make it. I remember looking around me, there was not anybody there because it was a uh, Sunday. And so not as many visitors on Sunday, not as much traffic. Yeah. So I got into the ED and I remember seeing one of the attendings. It's someone who I worked with in my first year of training to be a neurologist. We train as internists, which mean that I need to be on top of all of the organ systems. And part of that training means that I have to also rotate in the emergency department and get a feel for you know how those doctors respond to whoever is arriving at that hospital. And this particular attending, I remember, did the same exams, the x-rays, the labs, and he came into the room extremely concerned. And he said, John, what is going on? This does not look good. Those were his words. Mm. And I looked at him and this man does not mince any words. So I knew something was wrong. He tells me my x-ray actually looks like it's related to a heart disease and not a lung disease. It's just not pumping the blood well enough. And so that was the first exposure that I had to, this is going to be bad. What I'm going to hear next is going to be bad. This is not a typical checkup. So the discussion was imaging my heart with an ultrasound. That would be the next step in which they'd be able to visualize my heart using the ultrasound and they can see all four chambers of my heart see what are the problems at the lungs, you know, looking at the right side of the heart, or they can look at the left side of the heart and see whether that aspect of the heart is doing its job. I remember when they were doing the imaging, I looked over and my heart was not beating like what I normally have seen in these ultrasounds. First of all, my heart was thin. It was way larger than it's supposed to be. And every time it squeezed, there was a lot of blood that was just not being pumped into my body. The cardiologist fellow came down and his first words were, this is low. And uh, I knew exactly what he was referring to. This is extremely low cardiac output, which is a measure of the blood that gets ejected every time your heart squeezes. And I remember everything at that moment was a blur. I didn't know what my prognosis was. Usually when I'm taking care of patients with hearts like this, they may require an, an infusion of medications such as dobutamin, which basically puts your heart in overdrive in order for you to be able to pump out the heart. So immediately the doctors started to do what they know in that situation, which is to give me diuretics, which are pills that you know allow me to get rid of the extra fluid in my body that was accumulating in my lungs. And strangely, it wasn't accumulating in my legs, which is normally what happens for heart failure patients. One of the reasons why this diagnosis was so surprising and then that will buy them the time to figure out what caused this particular heart situation. The next step was a cardiac MRI, which is the most sensitive radiographic imaging of the heart. And usually, typically, that gets done in two days to about seven days. But mine was done the next morning just because of the scheduling issues as well as who happened to be there at that hospital. And I would imagine some part of it had to do with the fact that I am one of their own. I have worked in the cardiology department for a month. And so that might have played a role. That was one of the most fearful experiences that I went through. It's a very narrow area. 
and they stressed my heart by infusing me with a medication called adenosine, which basically has the side effect of making you feel like you're dying. In a way, it's sort of stopping your heart and making it harder for it to pump. In this super narrow area, they infused that medication. And I just remember just reaching out to God over and over and over again. I said, dear God, I am completely frightened. I remember repeating to him, please do as you will. I will not be afraid. I will not be afraid. But it was basically the only sword that I had to all that fear that was accumulating at that moment. When that cardiac MRI was done, it confirmed the severely reduced ejection fraction heart failure. It confirmed that my heart was ballooned out. And it also confirmed that it was not due to a coronary artery disease, which we frequently know as a heart attack, which means that some of the vessels that are feeding our heart can sometimes be occluded. And then you have a heart attack and then consequently you have heart damage that leads to heart failure. That was ruled out just based on the technicalities of the cardiac MRI and certain obvious signs of inflammation, obvious signs of infiltrative disease, where sometimes you can get rare diseases where your heart is attacked by your immune response, where there's substances that accumulate in there. Those were also rolled out. So what was confirmed is that my heart is ballooned up, isn't working very well. And somehow by the miracle of God, I'm alive and I'm not requiring the dobutamine drip because the number that they calculated for my ejection fraction was 14%. That is a number that would scare most physicians immediately, especially in a patient who is young as I am in the 40s. It's probably scarier actually for patients who are older than I am just because of what it means for sudden cardiac deaths and risks of all types of catastrophes that could occur. And so that number, when I heard it (laughs) being uttered, it took me down this memory lane where I've taken care of patients who have died and passed away with that number who were in their last moments of life. That 14% is basically calculated as the volume that your heart is ejecting every time it squeezes divided by the volume of blood that remains in the heart. And so it's supposed to be around 55 to sometimes up to 65% in a normal individual. So if you do the math, that meant my heart was 10 to 20% of, of a normal heart. It's one of the most overworked muscles in our body. And these were the thought processes that were going on my mind. I mean, the doctors and I both didn't know, you know what's causing it. What we knew for a fact is that my blood pressure was very high. It was super elevated and had not been treated. And there was some evidence of developmental issues in my heart, which is called non-compaction, which is a fancy way of saying that the heart's supposed to be smooth and taut. But for some individuals, it's not as smooth and taut. It's got these trabeculations or these areas are not densely packed. The high blood pressure and the non-compaction does not explain why at the age of 40, I would have a ballooned out heart that's working at 10 to 20% of a normal patient. Overall, the doctors did what they could, which is they put me on these heart failure medications that have normally worked in patients with heart attacks. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they have worked in patients that have this unexplained cardiomyopathy, but maybe not as effective, but they did what they knew based on the textbooks and based on what we know about patients in heart failure. You start to add control to patients' blood pressures, and then you give these medications that have been shown to remodel the heart over the long run. 
And so they spent the next six days or so while I was hospitalized to kind of add one of these drugs at a time without tipping my heart into fatal arrhythmia or to the point where it cannot eject blood to sustain my life. And so it was carefully titrated in that six days time period. And that time period was basically me, God, and more of me, Hmm. and more of me, and then God, and then Occasionally, I had visitors such as Leslie Moore, who's like a, I, I can't decide whether she's another mother to me or a grandmother to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> What's important is that she's a very, very close family to me now, whom I met through the house church in the past three or four years. She came by, as well as some of my resident colleagues came by. My wife at that time was my fiance, but she was stuck in Canada, which is another story altogether. I made it super hard for her that she is unable to cross that border, unable to have the financial security to just up and leave You know, at that moment. It was a lot of complex issues. And my family, most of whom are in Korea, could not make it over because they have not been vaccinated. And so there are a lot of different things in play. Man, there's just so much in there. You know, I had experience a few years ago of blacking out and going into the hospital. And as, as you were describing the different tests, I'm remembering when I had to get those tests done because my heart rate had increased before I blacked out. I have a history of heart disease in my family. And so they wanted to do everything they could to be thorough. And what's hard is you just don't know. Like if something's wrong with your arm, <laughs> you could visually see. If something's wrong with different parts, you can tell what's going on or what's wrong. But with the heart, Like you mentioned, there could be so many factors. And so for anyone, that could be a fearful space. But you're not just anyone. You're a doctor who knows things, who has worked in the cardiology ward for a month. You know, it's like when a doctor looks at a chart, there's a lot they see. And there could be a lot of really difficult information that's on there. And then when a doctor looks at the patient, they have to think about what do they communicate to the patient? What's helpful? What do they need to know? What do they not need to know yet? How much can I give them to like make sure they understand, but not so much that they get scared? You don't have the perk that most patients do where they just like, oh, the doctor seems like it's not too serious. Like you'll hear them say the word it's low (laughs) and you're like, I know what that means. And so, man, that had to be so heavy for you. And so one of the questions that really stood out in my mind that I want to ask is when you were getting the MRI, you talked about how you felt like you were dying and it was just you and God, like that's all you had. And all I could help but to think was just a few years ago, if this had happened, you would have been a very different place. What would this experience have been like for you had you not known God? How might it have been different? That's a very difficult question because as much as I have not been a believer in God, if you rewind my life back three to four years ago, after I had witnessed miracles and even previous to witnessing miracles, I have like tangentially reached out to God. And that kind of has to do with I was being raised by both an atheist as well as a Christian set of parents. And so I have gone to church up until I was seven years old then no longer going to church after that point, which is a different story altogether. But it was such a helpless moment being in that MRI. Hmm. What I know for a fact is if I had not known what God is capable of above, I may have reached out to him, but the suffering would have been probably tenfold, you know, what I went through. The MRI has this 
crazy sort of like electronic sounds that yeah. are very invasive when it's occurring. It kind of zaps your body in a very circular kind of way. And it's a warmth that you feel that is extremely unpleasant. Mm -hmm. It's also a super narrow space. And I just remember thinking this feels like prison to me. I have not been in prison, but that moment felt like I was separated and isolated from the world. Even if the technicians were watching, all the voices were automated. It was like pressing a button. It was an automated voice telling me to breathe in, hold my breath, breathe out, you know, stand still. Are you okay? They were not human voices at that time. It was a very jarring experience. And I remember just pure desperation, reaching out to God, just repeating myself over and over again to fill the space. It kept me sane throughout the process. It allowed me to rest up even after the cardiac MRI. It kept me away from what I may have done, which is to look up all the cardiac diseases <laughs> and, and basically form a differential, which is a fancy way of saying, you know, what could the cause be the most likely causes this, that, and that. I would have looked up some like trial papers and seen what we have found on this so far. But I, I kept away from all that. Yeah. I reached out to God. I reached out in his ability to heal my heart, to aid the physicians with the right you know, medications and the right conclusions. And I removed, I basically recused myself from the treatment and the thought process that goes into figuring out what's causing the disease process overall. Which is a big deal, right? Because inherently we have within us this desire to control. Mm -hmm. And if we can play a role in what's going to happen to us, and if we have the knowledge base like you do to play a role in that, then we want to. We don't want to leave things up to chance. We don't want to leave things in the hands of others unless we really, 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 really trust them. And I love that designation you made that a number of years ago, you might have still reached out to God. But the big difference is you have come to know and experience God in an incredibly robust way over the last few years. Like you mentioned, you know what he's capable of. You saw a young man that should have died miraculously, not just live, but then you saw him walking, <laughs> you know, and he should never have been able to walk. You know of a God who can do the impossible and a God who is love. That's the other thing that you've experienced in the past few years is God's love and particularly through others. And you mentioned Leslie Moore and how God has loved through people and so you're in this space where your science mind can see it in a very specific way. And suddenly you have access to this other mind, <laughs> this other way of seeing the world that's able to say, this is objectively awful. This is objectively frightening. And I don't know what's going to happen. But what I do know is that there is a God who loves me, who can do miracles and who does it in ways that don't always look the way I want them to look or make sense. And so I don't have to give up because that's the other thing I thought of is in your hardest moments when you told your story in the first episode you were in, you were in some really hard places. And if you had been just in and of yourself and still in that hard space and then this was thrown at you, man, <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> it would have been rough. But instead, it's almost like God was planting seeds years ago for this time when you would be more alone than ever because your fiance is in Canada and can't come over. Your family can't come over because of a global pandemic. 
it's hard for other people to visit because of protocols and what their status is. And yet someone who was able to visit you was someone who wasn't family a few years ago, someone you didn't know a few years ago that God brought about through spiritual family. And so it's just really your story is really beautiful in showing what God brings to the table and how that can increase. Like we can go from just knowing that God is good and reaching out to him to the more we learn about him, the more that changes how we reach out and what we're reaching out for. What's the story of your heart today? You know, we're sitting here, you're not in a hospital. What's going on now? And how have you sensed God in the midst of that? So as of two and a half weeks ago, I was actually in one of those follow-up appointments in which they re-imaged, re-ultrasounded my heart. And I'm currently on six heart failure medications. Hmm. A couple of those have been added since I've been discharged from the hospital as well. I've also been starting to work in what they call the outpatient capacity in my residency program, which is what most people think of doctors doing, which is they go to a clinic and then they wait there until their names are called. They go in, they talk to their doctor and then they leave. And then maybe they get a new medication or they get an adjustment medication or plan for what's going to be discussed in the next meeting. And so that's the capacity that I've been working in because the type of intensity that's required in an inpatient setting, such as like in that hospital, like when I was personally hospitalized for six days or when someone is admitted to the hospital, that's where doctors are trying to decide whether that patient can go home safely or not. It's like they don't know. And those kind of high stress situations I've been kind of kept out of. So I've been sort of returning in a limited capacity. So my wife, Adriana Giorgio now, fast forwarding from what happened in October to January, she actually came with me. That's an entire miracle in itself. What happened was the ejection fraction finally budged and moved to 26.5%. And my cardiologist said 26.5%, which is him trying to give me as much edge of an optimism as possible. Because typically we as doctors don't throw around those kind of numbers, even that number out to 25%, 30% by fives. But he was like adding that 1.5% to demonstrate to me that (laughs) it's getting better, you know, overall. He told me that it does not mean that, you know, I don't have heart failure. I do. I still have severe heart failure. The cutoff is sort of 35%, at which point I don't have to worry about sudden cardiac death, you know, which is a risk that I still possess today. Mm. However, this was the best news that I've heard in three months' time. On my previous follow-ups, there was no meaningful improvement of my heart. And so you can only imagine all the worries And all of the doubt that can kind of creep into your mind as the enemy kind of shoves ideas at you or you start to be presented with a handicap and you're no longer the person that you used to be. And you have these dreams that you've been dragging with you all of your life and you kind of see them dissipating, you know, in this time period. You know, that was all God. I have no doubt in thinking this way because the cause of my heart disease is still unknown. There's guesses as to what's going on. I have no family history of heart disease or anybody getting early heart failure or requiring what they call an ICD device, which is something that patients get to prevent their heart from having sudden cardiac arrest because of arrhythmias. Nobody in my family has that, yet they did a genetic testing just because of how young I am. 
They found some mutations in proteins that are expressed in our components of the heart, but it's a mutation about unknown clinical significance. So they don't have any data to compare that to. And so that became my cardiologist's favorite guess at what's going on. And his rationale is, you were alive when your ejection fraction was 14%. His explanation is this must have crept on slowly Mm. over the years. But he can't be 100% certain because that 14% could have occurred throughout months, not years. It could have been a very hidden COVID infection. Mm. I've never tested positive, but I've been constantly frequently in contact with COVID positive patients as a healthcare provider over the past two years. It may have even been the second COVID vaccination that I received, which is extremely rare, which also presents differently. I would have chest pain. I would have certain symptoms that are more consistent with what they call myocarditis. You would know if you get myocarditis and typically they don't become this tremendous in terms of the heart failure. They're very mild. And they usually go away very quickly. So another unsatisfactory sort of guess. Uh, The other possibility is maybe I had contracted just the garden variety myocarditis, not by COVID-19. Perhaps when my immune system was weakened as I'm stressed out in the hospital and I'm being in contact with pediatric patients from you know, Afghanistan or some, some that have virtually all of the viral infections as a newborn. And so maybe one of those viruses like Coxsackie could have infiltrated and caused the inflammation mm-hmm. or it could be something else that's going on overall. I believe the healing of my heart is entirely up to God. And the reason why I say that, even if it were one of those known disease processes, that has grown to be my explanation, even as someone that understands physiology and pathophysiology of specific moments, even as someone who understands the mechanism of action of some of these drugs, ultimately, the complexity of the heart, it depends on God. Mm -hmm. You know, you're in a unique space as someone who is caring for people who both have been healed and have not been healed. And also as someone who has known what it is to question God and to now really believe firmly in what God is capable of, like that shapes how you engage healing, right? That it's not a broad sweep that God heals everything all the time. And it's not a broad sweep that God no longer heals. And so What does that look like for you as you think about healing, when you think about God healing you, when you think about healing in general as a doctor? What is healing for you? That's a very good question. Not only do I have the background of being a physician, I also have the background of being a bench scientist. My experiences also look at the research that's behind like DNA, RNA, protein, you know, how it's responding to certain molecules. And then on top of that, I have the medical training, which is the explanation of how human organs are supposed to work and then what happens in specific disease processes and what we do to treat it. And so a lot of the times when I think about healing, before I became a stronger believer in God is that I felt like these organs operated on laws, rules, and principles, Hmm. just like When you drop an item, it would fall. Gravity is sort of doing its thing in that particular formula and that law. But after I became a stronger believer in God, what I started to recognize is the limitations of what we know about the different organs, the medications, the treatments. Mm -hmm. Uh, The organ systems, we have highlighted specific components that are in play in a normal heart 
And in a pathological heart, we've listed our knowledge about that, but it does not explain fully, you know, what's going on at the cellular level, the atomic level, all the signals that are going on that make up the heart. For example, the heart communicates to the brain and then the brain communicates back to the heart. A lot of those complexities we have no understanding for or we have limited understanding about. And the other thing that I picked up as a physician is in many of the cases, the patients heal on their own without us actually doing anything. Sometimes there is this philosophy of doing no harm, which means do not overtreat your patients with these medications. And a lot of the times they improve. And some of the times you give them medication, you don't know if it's medication or something else that's doing the healing. But what we have is a population-based evidence for, you know, this medication works for a great chunk of the patients that affect the statistically significant. Therefore, we have some evidence to provide it. But every individual is different. The makeup of, you know, my heart, your heart, somebody else's heart, there's some, you know, variabilities. It's not a perfect science. Mm-hmm. It's something that needs to be, you know, worked out between the patient and the doctor, and you have to weigh the risks and benefits, you know, that way. I'm going to tell you, when I first got discharged from the hospital, I had to fight my desire to research my disease mm-hmm. as much as possible. I wanted to go look up the papers and the research trials for every one of those medications that I'm taking, and I have somehow succeeded not to look those trials up. Maybe a couple of bottom lines I saw on the abstracts, but I've kept myself from doing it. The heart has so many symptoms. You get shorter breath, you get left arm pain, sometimes you get twinges in your heart, and then the medications also add side effects. Uh, You get lightheaded. Sometimes you can't talk as well. Mm -hmm. Things that are part of who you are, you can see it, the medication sometimes affecting it. And at other times you are who you are and you see your own limitations. And when this was happening, I have prayed as much as I possibly could. One of the phrases that really emerged as I was trying to get myself to work out and feeling my heart doing things that it normally has not done is basically John 4, 4, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And that became like a mantra that I adopted after I spoke with Leslie. And for example, I would be walking and in my first 30 steps, I start to feel like my heart's just pumping a little bit more and I just can't take those steps. And that was the mantra that I repeated until I got over it and, you know, was able to get to that point where my heart's working a little better. And then the fear that maybe my working the heart might lead to sudden cardiac arrest. And I would repeat this mantra and it kept me going like in those moments. But regardless, when these tests came back time and time again, and these symptoms just kept recurring. And as they started adding more medications, I would kind of have those days when I slipped backwards in progress. There were times when I was in tears, like there were times when I did not want to live on. My life had changed so much. I was on zero medications prior to admission. And after the admission, I'm taking up to nine medications. One of them is something where I have to inject myself in the abdomen. Hmm. I'm doing this twice a day. I have to set alarms in my phone. I have to take these medications twice a day. And prior to October, I was taking no medications. Maybe I should have been on one blood pressure medication uh, that I had neglected. But one of the things that happened is I was so discouraged and I actually received a text message from Kyle, mm-hmm. who had no idea that I went through this you know, hospitalizations. 
my capacity was only to respond to people who were reaching out to me at that time just because of how tired I was. And it was traumatic for me to explain what had happened, right. you know, over and over. It was like reliving that experience. And so Kyle got in touch with me. I told him that this is what had gone on by text. I said I was hospitalized. I'm with Leslie at that time. So Leslie and Boyd, they offered up their home for me to reside in as long as I needed to after I had been discharged because they knew that I'd be alone. Right. They wanted me to have that transition period before I felt it was safe for me to be by myself. While this was happening, my fiance was able to come visit me. When I had told Kyle what had happened to me, he was driving at that time. So he just pulled over and he called me. The first thing that he did was pray. Just hearing his voice and being able to replay in my mind the miracle that I had witnessed in Kyle's healing, I remember that my response was just complete tears. Yeah. Having this man who is basically to me a testament of God to me, he's like a spiritual brother, and we have a very special relationship. And for him to pray over me and to convince me that I will be fine and I will be healed and I've already been healed, it was something else. I remember that my response to that was crying and I uh, was just tears just streaming out and asking God for forgiveness for my lack of belief, my unbelief. Kyle later told me that where he had pulled over, there was like a cross that was graffitied on the wall where he had parked. And uh, he sent me that through the text message as well. And I realized that in my moments of fear, sometimes I am moved away from the types of miracles that God can perform. Now, having said that, I also became keenly aware of why patients don't like to see physicians, you know, in my experience, because they're good physicians. A physician's job is to lay down the worst case scenario and be prepared for it. Mm -hmm. You know, that's their job. That, that is our job is to recognize a disease and recognize the worst case scenario because the worst case scenario may occur and you have to have a game plan for that. And so most of my interactions with the doctors have been the worst case scenario and the focus is on that and possibly a need to put in an intracardiac device, an ICD, if my heart does not heal. Possibly the idea of dialing back on what I do as a resident and trying to have a discussion about whether I can complete my residency to become a doctor. Their role is to prepare you for the worst and have that game plan. And sometimes it does not align with, you know, your faith in God's healing. It does not align with your conviction that, you know, God will carry you through. And then sometimes as a physician, I remember all those times that where patients have died with chronic diseases, families that are torn apart, especially during the COVID ages uh, in different states, not even being present for their loved one. And I remember the agony and the torture that these family members have experienced on my watch as well. And so there is this dichotomy that kind of exists in my mind. There is a part of me that wants to think, let's be prepared for anything. Mm -hmm. You know, let's be prepared for God to tell me, you know, maybe the healing of the heart is not what he wants for me. And there's another part of me that's like, no, let's believe in the healing. Let's believe in what he has in store for me. Like, this is not how my story ends. This is not how it's supposed to go. He needs to use me where I will be at full capacity. To be honest with you, Paul, what has allowed me to get through the past three months is when I embraced that childlike belief in God, which is he will fully restore my heart and he will allow me the ability to be the physician that I want to be 
because that is my way of giving to others. That is my way of taking what he has given me over the rest of my life, all of my life, and to make something out of it. Yeah, it's very heavy, but what allowed me to get through it is this belief that he will restore my heart. You know, maybe this is what God, you know, the, the damage to my heart is permanent and I'm going to have to learn to live with it and you know, God will get me through it. Like that is not currently within my purview. Mm-hmm. That may have to come into my purview at some point, but that is not in my purview because that means that I don't have the faith in his ability to heal me at this moment. Mm-hmm. All of my ball is in that basket and the way I live my life or try to live my life is in that basket. Yeah. for now yeah you know and i have to go as strong as possible and i have to converse with him and i have to ask him for it because the scriptures that's what they call for for example my wife have sometimes repeated some of those biblical passages but first is joshua 1 9 uh, have i not commanded you be strong and courageous do not be afraid do not be discouraged for the lord of your god will be with you wherever you go and so that became her mantra as she became the rock for me. And she will not embrace any pessimism because she knows that I'm already dealing with so much pessimism, so much of what makes my faith complicated. She's been a Christian you know, most of her life. She met God more when she was a teenager. She's more seasoned in her walk of life. She has seen what God has done for longer than you know I have. Whereas I've been seeing that for the past four years or so. And so that was her mantra. And she's also told me that from Philippians 4, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And That became another mantra of hers as she saw me struggling with doubt. And sometimes there are moments when the symptoms hit me really hard, Paul. My response to that is, he is not going to heal my heart, you know. And so those moments happened. And when people have diseases, what I didn't understand until I went through my own processes, there are many occasions where they're alone with that disease. Their family members could be there with them. There could be nights where they wake up and they think about it and worry about it. There could be that tinge that they feel when they're walking. There could be that breathing problem that they have when they're eating or doing something else. Mm -hmm. And it is a problem that they have to deal with alone or with God. Because, you know, the loved ones cannot be there all the time, Paul. Yeah, It's an extremely solitary moment unless you reach out to God. Mm -hmm. I've learned to reach out to God and apologize over and over again for my lack of faith. I asked him for a sign, you know, of recovery, and he finally gave me that sign three weeks ago. And prior to that, I can't tell you how many times I've collapsed in my faith. John, there's so much in all of this. What I really appreciate is you're bringing a, a really important nuance to this conversation of what should we be expectant of? Because there are some people that it's very much, you got to believe it, God will heal, like you have to claim it, you have to call it. There are others who are like, no, that's not the approach, you can't do that. And then sometimes we can find ourselves sitting in a place like, well, what do I do? (laughs) How do I respond? If I want to be healed and it doesn't seem to be happening, is that my fault? Is that God's fault? It can be a crippling space. As you're talking, what it makes me realize is in those moments, the invitation is to ask ourselves, what is it that we're seeking? Because 
you've described being at a place years ago where you knew who God was and you reached out to him, but how you seek him now is different. When we are in a place where we're desiring healing, we can rightly and understandably desire to be healed. But the bigger invitation is what could it look like to seek God in the midst? And as you're talking, that's what I'm hearing. It reminds me of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What they knew was at the very core, they were going to seek and honor God. And so if anything was being asked of them that was contrary, like bowing down to a statue, they weren't going to do it. Now, did they also not want to be thrown into a fire? Absolutely. Nobody wants to be burned in a furnace. Nobody wants to be persecuted. Nobody wants any of that. So they also had that desire within them. But the higher desire was that they honored and glorified God. And so they went in the direction that went towards that. And they had a point where they had to acknowledge, we believe that God can save us from the fire. But either way, we're going to honor God, whether he does it or not. And I wonder if they felt similar pain as what you felt in the moments where it seemed like things were getting worse when they were being walked towards the fire. But their resolve remained the same. At the very end of the day, they are going to seek God, whether they live or die. And what's amazing is up until a point, it looked like all of their faith was for naught. (laughs) It looked like their God wasn't real because they were literally thrown into a fire. But something impossible happened. When it looked like restoration wasn't going to happen, it not only happened, but in such a miraculous way that Nebuchadnezzar couldn't deny it. And so I love this. This is what you're kind of inviting us to in your own healing journey. And to those who are in healing journeys is it can be crippling to think of all the different scenarios. God could heal me completely. God could not heal me at all and invite me to stay in that space. God could heal me, but it might take time. God could, God could, God could. And then we don't know what direction to step. And what you're basically saying is, how can we start with knowing who God is and what he's capable of, and then prayerfully start heading in a direction? And this is the piece that I love is you're like, this other scenario is currently not my purview, but one day it could be. So you're keeping an openness to if God makes it clear that he's doing something else, you're going to go in the direction that God is in without it being a pulling back dismissal of, well, I'm not all in for healing. Like you're like, I'm claiming it. (laughs) But you're also kind of taking the approach that Jesus took. This is what I really hope for, but not my will, but yours be done. And so at the end of the day, that sounds like the space that you're in. The other thing that I love that you shared is you said, I did not understand this until my own process. And what hit me was, man, You are going to be a far better doctor because of this than you would have been without this. Because now, as you engage with patients, there are things that you understand because of what you have experienced and the depth in which you have had to experience it that you could never have gotten from a book. You will look into a patient's eyes and you will see things that you would never have seen before. And what a beautiful thing that God does when he actually equips us to be able to love others in a more robust way than we ever could have on our own. You and I could just keep on going and going and going. But one question I want to ask as we start to pull out, actually, there's two questions I want to ask, but one I definitely want to leave time for. Somebody listening may be in a similar place where out of nowhere, something has happened, a heart issue, a lung issue, something is going on. There's a lot of fear. There are a lot of unknowns. Maybe there's a lot of medication. Maybe there's not a lot of positive development. Maybe there's negative movement. Maybe there's someone that's in that low place where they just don't know what to do, don't know what to think about God. What would you say to that person to encourage them where they are now? 
my advice to that person would be to reach out and be honest with God. Be honest. Be honest about the bitterness that you have, the fear that you have. You have to be honest when you don't believe in him. You tell him that because the worst thing that you can possibly do is not to talk to him. The worst thing that you can possibly do is assume you know what's going to happen. Like you assume that position of this is going to get worse. And you take on your own shoulders that burden that you're not supposed to be experiencing because when you're healing, you're supposed to relax your mind. You're supposed to unburden yourself so that your body has that chance to heal so that the energy that it has is not going towards the worries and the stress and the bitterness, but it's going towards the healing of that organ that's damaged. Mm -hmm. And it also allows you to have that attitude where you're going to work with the physicians You're going to titrate your medications. You're going to communicate to them like, this is what's going on. This is what's wrong when you give me this medication. And this is the benefit from that. And so you can have an honest dialogue with the physician in the process. But if you close yourself off and you already know you're going to die, you already know that, you know, nothing's going to happen. Then you have effectively isolated yourself from God. You have isolated yourself from your loved ones. You have isolated yourself from the physicians and you have effectively doomed yourself. Hmm. And at that point, everything kind of spirals out of control. And I'm saying this because I also wanted to not talk to God. I also wanted to shut out my loved ones. I also kind of reverted back to those moments. And when those moments happened, I was miserable. And it led to spirit of depression. It allowed for different types of attacks from the enemy. It allowed for this downward spiral. What I would tell that person is the honesty and openness. Be open with God. Tell people that you are miserable. Tell them, you know, where you are. Let it out of your chest. Let that bitterness go. Let it process. The other advice that I have is what helped me was I revisited all of the miracles in the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I actually did not have the capacity to read from the scripture sometimes directly. So it would be through audiobooks or it would be through stories or movies that have been inspired by the Bible. And through this way, you're not completely shutting it out. Yes, you do not have the capacity to read scripture. Uh, scripture is wonderful, but it's complex and it's got so many different references that it's tough to feel, you know, which is like the most important thing sometimes. So what, use whatever medium is out there for you to be a witness to God's miracles, to God healing a paralytic's legs, to God driving demons out of Mary. All of those miracles, revisit them, feel them, be there, and be present, and understand that what he's done, and at the same time, you know, sacrifice himself and went through all that pain and fear to take that burden from all of us. Those moments actually were cathartic. You know, I've actually watched and lived through them. And sometimes I was numb, but other times my heart was ready to receive the miracle that he had performed. And for me, that was paramount, especially when, you know, doctors, they would take a look at my heart, serial you know, ultrasounds one month from when I had left the hospital. And they were dead silent because no one wanted to tell me that my heart wasn't healing. The attending who I'm working with is world renowned in the cardiology field and The best way for him to break it to me was, you know, maybe you're going to need the intracardiac device in the short run, but you're probably going to need one in the long run, you know, after just seeing no improvement in my heart. That was his most artful way of breaking the bad news to me, mm -hmm. uh, which is he's not certain about this, but his certainty that, you know, this heart disease is going to cripple me in the long run is pretty high. He's telling me that he doesn't know everything, you know, either as well. 
And so that, that's kind of the, the same conversations that I've had with my own patients at times uh, after they've had a stroke. Clearly, I think the most important thing is being honest, being honest about the anger that you have, the bitterness that you have, the injustice that you may feel, you know, as you're going through this, the why me, being honest about that, being honest about your dreams and how they might be halted because of what you're going through. And being honest about being too selfish, you know, as you're dealing with juggling with these issues as well, and just allow yourself to see the truth. Uh, eventually, sometimes you are not at the right time to see the truth. And you have to recognize that too. And you have to process that and you have to tell God because you, you don't want to sever your relationship with God. There's so many different ways to do it. And one is being like the person that goes, you know, I'm in charge here of my own destiny. I'm going to die. This is, this is how I'm going to do it. That's close yourself off in the world. And that's choosing to be alone in your sickness. Yeah. And my last question is, is there anything else in your heart or mind that you wanted to share before we go? One of the things that I did want to talk about in this podcast is that I have had many wonderful conversations with my Christian brothers and sisters, uh, in particular about medications. Mm. Where do they belong in God's healing? Because when you look at the scriptures and everything, when you witness the miracles, you know, God basically took that leprosy, a particular virus that's latent and kind of being walled off as your immune system is attacking it in the skin. He effectively took it and made it go away. He made that virus evaporate. Now we have medications that decrease that immune response or that target that particular pathological process. Is it right to take the medication or is it right to just ask God to heal it without taking the medication? That's something that I actually thought about a lot over the past several months. Maybe I thought about it before. And the belief system that I'm coming up with is, yes, you should take those medications. And the reason why is that knowledge about the medication, it ultimately comes from God. The scientists may not believe in God, but God can use rocks. He can use anything, any kind of elementals, anything in this world in a way to help those that believe in him. You cannot limit him to this box of like, you fall off a cliff and then you're not going to die like box. Like he's going to elevate you and keep you afloat on the river type of box. He will perform his miracles in so many different ways. And my conviction is that the medications and the knowledge about them and the clinicians, he's using them. Now, having said that, if you think those medications are what's doing the healing, or if those clinicians are the end all for who's going to do your healing, you are dead wrong. You are absolutely dead wrong. Because the complexity of your body and how it works and how your pathology is, the clinicians are making their best guesses. They're giving you the medications that are based on very surface level knowledge. They know certain diseases very well. Diabetes. Your body cannot make insulin. So the answer is to give you insulin after you eat. They know that pretty well. That is kind of like boiling water in terms of you know, how knowledge goes. But like healing process, like what's going on with my heart, when you have undergone a stroke, your left arm is weak, is it going to move again? Physicians have no solution to that. They have a certain idea where it might go, but they don't know if your brain's going to rewire or it's going to do something else. Things are going to click in. That is something that they cannot predict. That is beyond them. There are medications that target a specific disease. They made their best guess, but it might be a different pathological process that is beyond their understanding. There's many of the stuff that we don't understand. And therefore, yes, you take that advice, but ultimately it's God that's going to do the healing. God is basically the ruler of time. He's the ruler of all the atoms. He created the universe. 
He's the one that also created the elements of death as well. And so therefore, if you are relying on these physicians and medications to do the healing entirely, you couldn't be putting yourself in a worse situation because it's entirely wrong. And this is a perspective that I'm still thinking about Mm -hmm. as time goes by. But I can tell you this, if I give a patient some medications that, you know, may, you know, help with their disease process, if I can't win their hearts over, if I can't communicate the bad things that will happen with the medications if they take it and what our goal is, if I can't empathize with what that patient is going through and convince them to take the medications, try it, and then go a different way, then my utility is basically, you know, what good am I as a healer? I have learned to also pray for my patients after I have made my best educated guess based on the rigors of science and based on the evidence-based medicine that exists. What happens when the healer needs healing himself? I really appreciate this conversation with John and more. I appreciate his transparency because he actually invited us into his process. He is still in the midst of his story, still having to navigate what healing means. As he noted, there can be some hard questions, such as, if you take medication, does that mean you don't have enough faith in God? Or if you dismiss medication, does that mean you don't believe that God can work through medicine? And in all of this, I love that we landed in one place, which was this. Above all, the invitation is not to figure out the right answer, but to seek God, to trust God. And scripture is full of this invitation. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all the rest will follow. Jesus saying, die to self and follow me. And a verse that I brought up often, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all of your ways, submit to him, and he will set your path straight. Because that last part is what we want, right? We want to be on the straight path. We want to go where we're supposed to go. We want to get to the healing we're supposed to receive. And we can struggle with knowing how to get there. But we're told how to get there. To trust God. To not lean on our own understanding. And to submit to him in all of our ways. And I love the wording of that that it says, do not lean on your own understanding. Because it does not say, dismiss your understanding. Because that would be a hard thing for someone like John, whose career is based on the things that he has learned and that he knows. And God's not calling him to dismiss his knowledge. But it's like he's saying, John, I know you know what you know. Don't lean on that. Trust in me. And trusting in God can be hard because sometimes it means we have to move forward even if we don't know what we're moving towards. Even if it looks like what we're moving towards is a trap, even if it looks like moving forward is going to take us right off of a cliff. Trusting God takes a lot. And submitting to God, that takes a lot too. Submitting is saying, I know what my will is, but not my will, but yours be done. And that can cost us. Right now, John knows what his dreams were, and he doesn't know what his future will be. Except he does know that God loves him. He does know that God works. He does know that God is powerful, and he does believe that God can heal his heart. And so he takes a step forward each day, choosing to trust in God with all of his heart, choosing not to lean on his own understanding or fears, and choosing to submit his ways 
submit his plans to God, knowing that the absolute best path that he could ever go on is not one that he would have found, not one he could have worked towards, but the one that God is crafting for him. If you're in a hard situation, I hope that John's transparency has encouraged you. You are not alone. There are folks like John who are also walking the hard journeys and finding ways to step even when it's hard to step. You are also not alone because there is a God who knows you and loves you and who goes before you. I know it can be hard to trust God. I know it can be hard to not lean on your own understanding. I know it can be hard to submit all of your ways and your plans and your hopes and your dreams to God. What I also know is that God is able to do abundantly more than anything you could ask for or imagine. So trust, release, submit, and then ask yourself, where did you see God? Have you ever wanted to read Revelation but haven't known where to start? Or have you been afraid to read Revelation because of all the ways you've seen it misused? Or maybe you haven't even wanted to touch Revelation but feel like maybe you should since it's part of the Bible? Well, if you're in any of these positions or any other ones, I've got a resource for you. It's called A Journey Through Revelation for the Person Who Doesn't Want to Read Revelation. And here's the thing. The hope for this resource is that it makes the exploration of who God is and what revelation can mean for you accessible, whatever you believe. And this will not be your normal revelation study. It's not going to dive into the historic representations of the imagery or expertly decipher the prophecies. The goal of this is not to tell you what revelation means. It's to explore what it can mean for you. Now, this thing is available for you right now in a few forms. One, you could go to www.wheredidyouseegod.com revelation, and you can find a PDF for free, which you can read on your phone, on your device, or print out. But if you like something that's a little nicer looking, it is also available through Amazon on Kindle and in paperback form. And I prefer paperback, whether you print it or you get the one on Amazon, because this gives you a place to write some things out because you're going to want a place to write things out. Because I really do believe that God wants to speak to you through Revelation, whatever you feel about Revelation, whatever your experience and whatever you think about God. So if you're interested, get it for free, get it for a very, very, very low price. This is not about making money, but about us together exploring how we can see God in the midst of such a difficult and controversial book. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to the Where Did You See God podcast. And I would love for your stories to be a part of it as well. So there are a number of ways that you can do that. You can check out our Facebook page at Where Did You See God podcast. You can go to anchor.fm slash Where Did You See God, or you can leave a brief voice message at 804-372-3836. I would love to hear your stories. And if the stories you've heard have encouraged you, uh, think of someone else who could be encouraged as well and share it with them. The music you've been listening to is You'll Walk, You'll Run by Urban Doxology. They are a solid group and you will love listening to the rest of their music. So check them out. And as always, as you go through your day, ask yourself, where did you see God? <laughs>